listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. Look at this. A streak of green showed under lichen. Malachite. Hydrated copper carbonate. The edge is full of it, in a manner of speaking. But here is its furthest exposure in this direction. Now look across to the left and up a bit. Can you see anything? No. Try again. Well, I'll go to Leakin Lud Church. What do you see? It's a carving. Of what? I don't know. It, it's so weathered. C- concentric squares? It's not a face, is it? Or, or is it? Not squares, more trapezoid oil. A labyrinth, maybe. Must it be either or, said Cullen. You mean a doodle, said Meg. A doodle is meaningless, random. This isn't random, whatever else it is. And it's taken skill and effort and time. There's no way that that can be a doodle. And I don't think it was done with metal either. So what is it? What's it for? I've no idea. A territorial marker? Perhaps a claim? A warning? An indication of the special place? Whatever it is, it signifies something important about here, or even another dimensional boundary, or all, or more. If I were playing hard to get, said Meg, I'd say that you were claiming it's whatever you want to see. It's a Rorschach blot. That's your modern thought, said Colin. We have to make the imaginative leap into the ancient mind and the likelihood of a different world view. I agree that you could argue through a thing to have a multitude of possible meanings is tantamount to its having no meaning at all, but perhaps the opposite could once have applied. Perhaps a thing that could be thought to have a multitude of meaning gains strength and importance from the ambiguities. That was a reading from Boneland by Alan Garner. That's the book. What's the breakfast? Well... We were almost spoilt last time with the ocean at the end of the lane in that the book contained breakfast. There was a there was a burnt toast theme. Uh, and even uh, in the episode before that, when we did The Book Thief, we had death and chocolate, so we mm. ate chocolate. And I probably spent much more time than I should have done thinking about what the perfect Boneland breakfast was. And it turns out there isn't one. <laughs> they eat lamb at one point and we don't eat meat and also it's not really a breakfast mm. thing um so i decided just to stop worrying and love the breakfast it <laughs> <laughs> should be a mantra on a yeah t-shirt. we'll get that on a book of breakfast t-shirt um so i picked up uh Recipes for Happiness by The Happy Pair, who I don't know if you've ever seen their YouTube videos, but check them out. They're amazing. A couple of uh, Irish twins who do like five minute vegan meals and they're all really healthy, sort of whole foods. And um, they got some wonderful books, but loads of free stuff online too. And I saw breakfast burritos and I thought, you know what? We can at least have alliteration Boneland breakfast burritos. <laughs> it's almost deliberate. I knew there was um, a method to the madness. Yeah. And they were really good. Mm. There's some whole wheat wraps, uh, beans, um, oyster mushrooms, fried in garlic with a bit of soy sauce. Uh, and we, we made our own guacamole. It was absolutely gorgeous. Sort of fresh avocados, 
cherry tomatoes. Uh, what else do we have in there? A bit of cumin, fresh coriander. Oh, the coriander really makes it. Yeah, lime juice, salt and pepper, chili flakes. Well, I had some chili flakes. And yeah, it's fantastic. Really, really fresh. And it's great because it, it, it's a burrito, but you get to have it for breakfast. <laughs> it's not cheating. It's a Boneland breakfast mm. burrito. <laughs> so on the subject of Boneland, in case you're not familiar with this book, you're probably listening to this episode because you are interested in Alan Garner and Boneland. But it's probably, of all the books we've done so far, it's probably one of the more obscure ones. And uh, it's a sequel of sorts <laughs> to a children's novel from 1960 called The Weird Stone of Brisingerman. Um, and there was a sequel to The Weird Stone published in 1963 called The Moon of Gomrath. And it ends on quite the cliffhanger. <laughs> Um, but I think Garner felt he'd kind of outgrown the series. He, I think he'd evolved as a writer. And I think he, like everybody does with their early stuff, I think Weirdstone was his first book, wasn't it? It was first yeah, published I think work. So. And I think he came to kind of reject it and think mm. it wasn't actually that good. And um, people asked him over the years, when's the third one coming out? And he said, oh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but then 50 years later, how old was he? He must have been way into his 70s. Um, he finally published, I'm going to call it the concluding chapter in the Weirdstone series, um, Boneland. And if you listened to our episode last month when we discussed The Ocean at the End of the Lane, I mentioned that Neil Gaiman once described this book as the fourth book in the in the Weirdstone series, but there is no third book. I um, I discovered... Alan Garner when I was little um, because my dad gave me this this huge paperback book called the Alan Garner Omnibus oh, wow. and it had um, the Weird Son of Brisingerman, the Moon of Gomrath and uh, all Eliador. the other impenetrable ones. <laughs> no, it is Eliador isn't it? Yeah. Which I haven't actually read but in <laughs> this will make you laugh in hindsight especially if you read Boneland you'll, you'll like this. So I read Weirdstone, loved it. Want to know what happens next to Colin and Susan? Red Moon of Gomrath. So, wow. What happens next to Colin and Susan? And because these three books were together in this omnibus, <laughs> I assumed quite reasonably that uh, Eliador was the third book in the Weirdstone series. So, it's not too much of a leap. So I read the third book in the Weirdstone series and thought, hang on, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> None of the original characters are in it, and it doesn't address um, pretty much anything from the first two books. Where is Boneland? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I realised that it, it wasn't uh, Weirdstone related at all, and I, I gave up. I did see the TV series, though. I, I absolutely loved it as a kid. Um but yes, Boneland. What what can be said about Boneland? How did you discover Boneland and Alan Garner? I also discovered Alan Garner through you and your dad. Mm. Um, I didn't discover it and him until we were teenagers mm. and we were driving, or your dad was driving us to Ilham in the Peak District. Oh, wow. And we were going along the Cat and Fiddle Road and your dad was pointing out the hills that um, get mentioned in the Alan Garner books. Ah. And I was really fascinated in in that sort of age where um, 
my kind of appetite and capacity for mystery was expanding in tangent with discovering progressive rock. There was something kind of uh, fantastical and otherworldly, and the fact that these hills we were driving through could be like portals to other dimensions just seemed infinitely fascinating. Mm. So I read The Weird Stone of Brisingamon the first time, when we were about 16, maybe even 17, it was quite late for me. Probably not mm. that long after I read it, I don't mm. think. In the scheme of things, mm. probably not. Um, and I thought it was really good. But then I didn't read The Moon of Gomrath until at some point for a birthday in my 20s, you brought me um, a modern edition of Weird Stone. With an additional forward. It's not that long. Oh, I think it is, yeah. And it's got the Neil Gaiman quotes on. Alan Garner's fiction is something Mm. special. And I reread it. And round about the time I was rereading that, at the museum in Manchester, uh, near the university, they had a a little section in one of the exhibitions about Alan Garner and about the Cheshire mythology and that he mines and how it was linked to uh, reality and they had some artifacts um, and they were talking about the new book that he was working on, the promised final third part of the uh, Weirdstone trilogy Um, or maybe the fourth part going by Gaiman's logic (laughs) Um, and so that made me want to read The Moon of Gomrath in anticipation of the third part Um, and I guess we'll touch a little bit on Weirdstone and Gomrath today, but Boneland really is something else. Um, I guess Boneland kind of coincides with a period of my life. It came out in 2013, I think. 2012. 2012, I think, right. Mm. Okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't read it till 2017, I think, or thereabouts. Mm, I think I read it shortly after moving to Manchester. Mm. And. Um, I guess as a kind of reaction to moving to Manchester and being a little bit further away from the countryside, I was really drawn to Audley Edge, and I always lived on the south side of the city when I did live in Manchester. And there was something... Audley Edge and Jodrell Bank uh, and that whole area of Cheshire countryside had a real pull for me once I lived there. Um, I don't know if it was just because... I could get to a train station that could get me to them easily. Mm. But I always thought there was a, a sense of energy about that environment, that um, there is something mysterious and otherworldly about it. So it's a time when I was really into that uh, and visiting there a lot. I read Boneland, and it meant a great deal to me. But even beyond that now, living further away from Manchester, there is still... There's something about this book that seems to kind of um, tap into something, something elemental that I completely believe without being able to accurately express. And um, it's a difficult book to talk about, really. It's probably one of my favourite books. Well, it's certainly one of my favourite books. It may Mm. be my favourite book. Um, And yet... Some people would say it is completely impenetrable. Yeah. And um, there are wide sections of it which are very beautiful and poetic, but really I don't think anyone really quite knows what's going on in them, but they're <laughs> wonderful. 
And I think it's it's a little bit like Twin Peaks. Mm. There's so much mystery hinted at that all the possibilities that could explode from any page are infinite and wonderful. And I think I like the fact that it doesn't spoon-feed its meaning to you. It, the possibility and the questions are more exciting than whatever answers could exist. I'm glad you mentioned Twin Peaks, because even though this is a book... The only thing I can think to compare Boneland to is Twin Peaks The Return or mm. Twin Peaks Series 3, which didn't come out at the same time as, as Boneland, but um, I, I read them. I, I read the book around about the same time as watching that TV series. Mm. And again, it was a sort of sequel to something that ended on a cliffhanger a long time ago mm. and people thought would, would never be revisited. But then it was in a way that nobody quite expected which gave us kind of nothing we wanted but (laughs) everything we deserved no not nothing we wanted nothing we expected Mm. but something else something much more intriguing and magical and wonderful and um which is why the extract you read at the beginning of this episode kind of sums up the book perfectly really doesn't it the idea Mm. that how can you you know Something either means everything or nothing and and the extent to which you kind of um, project your own interpretation or your own belief onto something. Um, But then, and that is a recurrent theme throughout the book. Um, And as you mentioned, so much of Alan Garner's writing is rooted not just in, in folklore, but the 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 folklore and the the mythology of his native Cheshire. Mm. And you have that idea of truth within fairy tale. And there's a wonderful bit where uh, the protagonist, Colin, is talking to his therapist. Meg's mm. a kind of therapist, isn't she? Yeah, <laughs> Whatever very, she is. A very unusual. Very one. unconventional therapist. Uh, slow down, she says. You are distinctly high today. Uh, and he's talking about science and 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 fantasy both systems can be real but both are models you can't or shouldn't confuse them i did hey now kiddo said meg are you an astrophysicist saying that mythology and science have equal validity i'm saying they could have there may be truth in fairy tales my mistake was to mix them too right said meg always believe the fairy tales what were the fairy tales they will come true that's what they say in russia oh thank goodness At least you understand, said Colin. I thought you wouldn't. I've been using the telescope to find a myth, an object to trace a metaphor. They may both be real, but if so, they occupy different dimensions. I love that. (laughs) And again, I touched upon last week, last week, uh, last month, um, that when I reread both this and The Ocean at the End of the Lane in anticipation of A Book at Breakfast, um, I saw odd parallels between them and that idea of yes, yeah, science is real, but fairy tale is real too. But they op- uh, occupy different dimensions. Mm-hmm. And the idea of of certain elements in ocean, like Ursula Monkton and the hunger birds and things, being me kind of incomprehensible because they exist in a different sphere. And that idea of being in the ocean of consciousness and understanding things innately, but then from a human perspective, being kind of flawed and unable to perceive these things because they're just completely outside. Anyway, so talking of Meg, we should talk about the characters a little, shouldn't we? 
Mm. So um, well, probably the easiest way to. <laughs> we of... can't talk about the plot. No. <laughs> um, I mean, even the characters. Is do they really exist? More than, is there more than one character? It's... <laughs> I think the Doctor's definitely real. <laughs> the one in the maybe. health centre. Yeah, at the start. yeah. yeah. And um, the people he works with, maybe. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. Even I was, that is confused. Actually, I was. I thought that his boss was real on the first two readings, but then I, I reread a section this morning in preparation for this, and I thought, oh, I'm not so sure anymore. Well, yeah, and when's it supposed <laughs> to be set? Because presumably the know. person that built Jodrell Bank wouldn't still be the managing director of the site. When was it built? Oh, because that's the telescope that uh, Meg referred to in, mm. the, in the passage I just read. But um, So the protagonist is called Colin Wisterfield, who uh, the original novel, The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, is, is very much a sort of traditional children's story in that sort of line the witch in the wardrobe vein where colin and susan uh they're twins aren't they mm. uh, i don't know if it says they're twins in the original but they they definitely are in both brother and sister and i again i i in my head i mix it up with lion the witch in the wardrobe and i think of them as evacuees but they're not are mm. they is their mother in hospital or something for some reason they've been sent off to live with their godparents who are um we can't really do the grandmother appreciation section in this episode. However, it is worth mm. mentioning uh, Gowther and Bess Mossock, yeah. the farmers they stay with in Winston and Brisingerman, who just, they are the Cheshire countryside brought to life, really, aren't they? High Most Redmany is the name of their farm. Anyway, it's, but and then, you know, they go off and have all kind of, uh, you know, magical and perilous adventures. And uh, the, the the girl, Susan, she has... Um, it's a bracelet, isn't isn't it? That's got uh, the bride stone. They call mm. it. It's a family heirloom, which wouldn't you know is the mystical talisman <laughs> that the wizard has been searching for in order to destroy the Dark Lord. Um, and she just got it in Oxfam. <laughs> um, but then, in Boneland, we have an adult, Colin. Who is? Do you think how old is he supposed to be? Do you think is he in his sixties by this point? I'm not even entirely sure when the first book is set. Is the first book thirties? It's. I mean, I was just looking through it. It's I, because uh, it makes a point of saying that the farm Hymus Redmany has no electricity. Mm. So you you know you know that it's old fashioned for whatever period it's set in, and it was published in 1960. But you get the impression it's set slightly earlier than that. Mm. But the whole thing is oddly timeless, isn't it? I remember when when we first encounter Selena Place, who we'll talk about in a second, um, I was surprised because she's driving a car and it seemed so unrealistic. In fact, there's a brilliantly Tolkien-esque section where there's a dwarf and possibly an elf and some warriors and they're all at the kitchen table planning their epic route and we'll go over this mountain and we'll go... Da, da, da. And then Bess says, well, you could just get the bus. <laughs> Here's my favourite moment in the book. I was just trying to think in terms of technology, whether there's any mention of computers or phones in Boneland. Um, well, there are computers at Jodrell Bank. Oh, yes. And but... there's even a reference to um, Bess and Gowther calling the police, mm. which kind of blew my mind. Surely they, they went to the police station <laughs> on a bicycle or something. There's no way they had a telephone. Anyway, we're, we're straying a little bit. but So we have... Colin and Susan, these sort of archetypal child protagonists who go to stay with their slightly magical relatives. Not magical in a in, in a. They're not Gandalf. They're not Gandalf, but you know, they the farm kind of represents 
the boundary between the, mm. the world that the children know and the, the magic of the countryside and they're so connected to the land and its stories and it's Gowda who sits them down over a, an enormous Cheshire pie and tells them the legend of the the, the wizard of Alderley and you know well, that's what we should have had Cheshire pie I'm if not that's sure that's a a really a breakfasty <laughs> thing though is it breakfast if, pie if it is indeed a thing <laughs> um and so now this adult Colin is um an astrophysicist mm. very highly respected in his field we're not quite sure what his actual job is no because we know what he's doing mm. um we'll come to that in a moment but um yeah he, he has his his own personal reason for for doing the work he's doing at the telescope and even that gives it this kind of this sci-fi edge on top mm. of all the sort of fairy tale folkloric stuff uh, and the interesting thing is that colin uh, has no memory of anything that happened to him before the age of 13. So when we mentioned earlier that it, it's a sequel that doesn't address any of the events of the previous books, it's because the protagonist, the only person who was there, has forgotten everything about them. And the only glimpses we get of anything before that point are in archival newspaper reports. Mm. So it's really tantalising when it does address events in the first two books. They're through such a kind of a slant of reality and tangibility... Um, whereas you're used to seeing them in the kind of slant of fairy tale and fantasy, and the descriptions of those events in this book are very removed from that. So even when you do get glimpses of them, it's somehow removed from the world that's familiar to you, which is sort of weirdly unsettling in a way, very, having this yeah. kind of bottled period of time that Colin can't access, but the reader can't access with him. And... I think he knows on some level that he had a sister and he's lost her. Mm. And he has this kind of th- th- this innate sense of, of loss and loneliness. And uh, I'll just I'll briefly read the very ending of The Moon of Gomrath, which is, uh, you know, I want to try and stick to talking about uh, Boneland as much as possible. But then it because I, I think it does work as a piece of writing on its own. Mm. It would be very, very bizarre although it's pretty bizarre anyway. <laughs> um, and we've we've kind of described the plot of Weirdstone, that mm. basically uh, this girl has a family heirloom that turns out to be this magical artefact, and there's a dark lord and some goblins, and they're after it, but there's a wizard that helps them. There's a big battle, and it all comes right in the end. Um, but the second book, The Moon of Gomrath, is much harder to describe, and mm. we were discussing it earlier, and even though we've, we've both read it twice... Um, the plot is much hazier in both our minds. I remember scenes from it, and really quite creepy scenes, mm. actually. But basically, this dark force is unleashed, and it sort of possesses Susan. And there's a really scary scene where she's dragged away on a horse. Yes. And when she comes back, obviously, she's not really her. And, then, and she's got loads of sand in her hair that won't brush out. And I don't mm. know why that detail sticks in my head, especially for a kid's book. It was really quite unsettling and horrible. Um, it actually makes me think of Ocean when he comes back, um, when the boy comes back from wherever he's been with Lottie and he's got the hole in his foot with the worm in. But you kind of, you're holding the boy's hand through that in Ocean at the end of the yeah. lane. So you know the experience he's had that's kind of led him to be effectively possessed by this being. But with Susan, it all kind of happens out of sight and somehow not having access to what's happened to her to return her in this transformed state that brings Mm. this being into their world is more threatening and eerie somehow. So this is quite hard to contextualise, but um, 
this uh, is it the Brolican? Mm. Uh, th- th- this sort of evil entity Which has you been said before is a feature of Scottish folklore. Yeah, to to pursue Susan, sent by the Morrigan, who's an evil witch. Mm. Um, but they've summoned the Wild Hunt, which seemed to be on their side. <laughs> it's all a bit bizarre and and vague. Uh, and the Brolican is pursuing them. Well, Susan specifically. And then the end. The book ends very abruptly, and it ends like this. The hoofbeats drew near, and the earth throbbed. Colin opened his eyes. Now the cloud raced over ground, breaking into separate glories that whispered and sharpened into the skeins of starlight, and were horsemen. And at their head was majesty, crowned with antlers like the sun. But as they crossed the valley, one of the riders dropped behind, and Colin saw that it was Susan. She lost ground, though her speed was no less, and the light that formed her died and in its place was a smaller, solid figure that halted, forlorn, in the white wake of the riding. The horsemen climbed down from the hillside to the air, growing vast in the sky, and to meet them came nine women, their hair like wind, and away they rode together across the night, over the waves and beyond the isles, and the old magic was free forever, and the moon was new. It's such an unusual way to end something for for people that followed these two books and were in love with these characters to have it left like that with Colin and Susan seemingly separated Mm. must have been um, I bet people were quite mortified by that we're lucky in a way we we would have read Weirdstone and Gomrath in what the the noughties mm. horrible phrase and i suppose in the even though we we had to grow up and become adults we still only had to wait you know the best 20 years some people have been waiting 50 imagine being a child yeah. in the 60s loving those books and people will have died without knowing how the yeah. story ended oh my word um but yeah so we end with susan seemingly being rescued if indeed rescued is the right word by these kind of ethereal riders from the sky mm. are they aliens are they divine beings are they malevolent beings are they are they creatures of magic or myth we don't really know what they are but these women appear and take her off into the sky and then i mentioned that um colin has his own motives for working at the telescope and he's looking into the pleiades because he believes for some reason, it's, you know, he doesn't retain much, but he has this innate belief that he once had a sister who is now in the Pleiades. Because the Pleiades are apparently a refuge for maidens. Maidens in and women, yeah. So. Um, and there's a line where, where, where Meg, the therapist, says to him, how many light years away are the Pleiades? And he says, I don't know, you know, many, many, many light years away. And he says, well, if your sister has taken 20, 40, however, how, you know, she... She couldn't be there. There hasn't been enough time. And he says, only if time is linear. And that, that's when the whole thing unravels. And I think that's what leads into that, the bit I quoted earlier about, um, you know, science and fairy tale occupying different realms, mm. but both being real. So that's Colin and, and Susan. Uh, so what about Meg? Meg is a fascinating character. I think Meg probably has the strongest individual voice of any character I've ever read. There is something, um, in some respects, she seems incredibly real. 
Mm. And she reminds me of an amalgamation of a lot of people I've known uh, over the years. But I just, I don't know anybody that sort of speaks quite like her or has the kind of self-confidence and sense of authority um, that Garner writes her with. I think she's a brilliant character. Um, you never quite know if you can trust her, though. No. And you is never she quite... exploiting him, or is she guiding him? And Colin just says these mad things. Mm. He's, he's such a, a, a bizarre person. And she takes everything he says in her stride. Mm. And you think, is it because she's incredibly intelligent and knows what he's talking about? Or is she humouring him because of the nature of her work? Mm. Is she used to working with troubled people and sort of not indulging them to an extent? At one point, she calls him a wazzock. And I love that. <laughs> He's saying he has to resign because of like, she says, oh, don't be a wazzock. Mm. <laughs> be such a martyr. You know. But she's fascinated enough by him that she goes to spend a day with him and has yeah. dinner with him. And he walks well, around all... the edge, oddly edge. Yeah. So it's. I don't think she is totally humouring him. I think she's fascinated by him. But... Maybe there's more to it all, and I kind of feel like maybe we shouldn't touch on that until a little bit later. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know, what do you think, in, in light of the end of the book? Well, yeah, what to make of that? Because I feel like that's quite key to talking about <laughs> Meg. Yeah, well, I mean, we can edit this out if if you want, but um, a, passage, a passage we both <laughs> mentioned earlier that we wanted to, to reference was a scene quite early on. The book begins with Colin being discharged from hospital. Mm. Do we know exactly what for? No. No, we don't. But, I mean, even that, mm. like, it, is he discharged from hospital? Or is <laughs> yeah. this all happening in a dream whilst he's in hospital? Because there is so much about dreams. And because the if, book itself... the sleeper it, it wakes, wakes, the dream, the dream dies. dies. Yeah. Which is very Lynchian. Yes, it is. Um and there's a really strange... You know what, before I read this scene, I will actually just read a little quote from Weirdstone, which I promised I wouldn't spend too much time on, but here we go. Um, Colin and Susan have just been wandering around Alderley Edge and discovering, uh, you know, the, the the wizard's waterfall and, you know, the local landmarks and having, having a lovely time. And then uh, it's that classic sort of stranger danger slightly frightening scene isn't it from a child's perspective where um and again i said the farm that they're at has no electricity and it all seems so earthy and homely and safe and then suddenly a car overtook them and pulled up sharply <laughs> and think oh no oh no a car modernity um the driver a woman got out and stood waiting for the children she looked about 45 years old was powerfully built fat was the word susan used to describe her and her head rested firmly on her shoulders without appearing to have much of a neck at all Two lines ran from either side of her nose to the corners of her wide, thin-lipped mouth. Her eyes were rather too small for a broad head. Strangely enough, her legs were thin and spindly, so that in outline she resembled a well-fed sparrow. But again, that was Susan's description. And it's the classic sort of, she offers them a lift and she's been very, very kind. Almost like the um, you know, the, the queen in, in Narnia yeah, offering the yes, uh, Turkish delight. Uh, but they, they sense danger and refuse to get in her car. Uh, but then she starts sort of chanting a spell, doesn't mm. she? And, and then fortunately, Gowther, Mossock and his dog Scamp turn <laughs> up and, uh, and, you know, b- break the, the enchantment. And the... But then we find out later on that this person is... Uh, an evil witch called the Morrigan. Mm. And there's a bit just a little bit later on as well where, um, and uh, 
she's kind of associated with birds and you get that description description of her being a bit like a sparrow but but there are crows around the farm too and there are more crows of the the more the the evil forces gather and you get this little um look somebody is watching us perched on a rock in front of them was a bird its head was thrust forward and it stared unwinkingly at the two children it's the carrion crow that was round the farm after tea cried susan Talk sense. How can you tell it's the same one? There are probably dozens of them about here. All the same, Colin did not like the way the birds sat hunched there so tensely, almost eagerly, and they had to pass as if they wanted to regain the path. He took a step forward, waved his arms in the air and cried, Shoo! in a voice that sounded woefully thin and unfrightening. The crow did not move. And that passage just proceeds a bit where they're they're beset by goblins doesn't mm. it or the svart alpha <laughs> which i think means dark elves for any word nerds <laughs> out, word nerds out there um and the morrigan is a character who it recurs throughout the weird stone and, and its sequel it's kind of it's the morrigan who sets the, the creature that pursues susan free isn't it and mm. who who chases her and leads to susan's disappearance in the sky but she doesn't uh, appear in boneland or, or does, does she, she? Uh, so yeah, when we get to Boneland and we have this adult Colin who has this terrifying fear of crows, mm. which again is great as the reader because you're thinking, oh, the Morrigan and the crows that would mm. turn up, but he doesn't remember that. He all he knows is that he's terrified of crows because, because he thinks they're witches. Mm. And there's this bit, and it's it, at the one hand it's quite funny and silly, but on the other hand, absolutely terrifying. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so Colin's been discharged from hospital and he's gone back to his house which is like a sort of it's a hut isn't it it's like a kit not a proper house it's like a what do you call it well it's based on a man that actually lived on old of course yeah um there was a a man that i i think he'd had some sort of accident and had a brain injury and he had become a hermit living on the side of old edge by the entrance to the cave which is on the cover to boneland and um you can actually visit that cave and you can see where the, the house would have been. Um, but I think Colin is based on mm, that oh, person. I'm sure I read um, an interview with Alan Garner where he specifically mm. said that was the inspiration. Mm. Um, and it also might be worth mentioning if you haven't read The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, we mentioned that there's a wizard in it, Caladin Silverbrow. Mm. Uh, and he lives in a cave, doesn't he? Yeah. On Old Early Edge and he guards... The, you know, in sort of Arthurian legend, there's this idea of the, the king and the sleeping knights who will who will awake at a time when England's need is is most dire. But until that day, the wizard's job is to guard them. And mm. then now Colin has almost become that figure. I was going to say again, uh, Cadillyn isn't in this book. Oh, is it Cadillyn? Sorry. Or is he? Or is he? I think it's Cadillyn Silverbrow, but Sorry. I'll, I'll check whilst you... Um... And of course, the um, the project that Colin is working on has an acronym which is yeah. Merlin. Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah, so he's he's gone to a doctor's appointment having left hospital uh, and in the waiting room, a woman was reading a book to a child on her knee. So the little boy went into the wood and he met a witch. Don't pick your nose. And the witch said, you come home with me and I'll give you a good dinner. Now, you wouldn't go home with a witch, would you? I wouldn't, Nan. But this little boy does. The witch's house stood on hen's legs. Isn't that daft? He nodded. And the witch said, Come in, and I'll give you some dinner. Would you go in? He shook his head. Well, 
the little boy see, he's going in. The witch said, come upstairs. Would you go upstairs with a witch? Don't go, said Colin. The woman looked at him. So the boy went upstairs. If you went upstairs in a witch's house, what would you do? I'd wee. Colin stood. Young man, do not go into the witch's house. Do not. And whatever you do, do not go upstairs. You must not go upstairs. Do not go. You are not to go. The woman put her arm around the child. You must not go upstairs. Oh, that was very well read. Oh, thank you. It, it, it's so frightening it on is. so many levels because you really feel for the child um, who must be thinking, who is this terrifying man mm. uh, who's saying that witches are real? And you feel for the mother who's thinking, oh, who is this lunatic who isn't safe? But then you feel for Colin because he... He believes what he's saying, yes. and, and it's reminiscent of a plot point in the Moon of Gomrath, where he is in Selina Place, aka the Morrigan's mm. house, and he's upstairs. And I think it's when Susan's taken. It, it, my memory of that book is very vague, but this fairy tale reminds him of something that we, as the reader, know happened to young Colin. He doesn't remember it, but he knows on some instinctive level. And a lot of this book you see through Colin's head. Yeah. Um, even when he's talking to Meg, perhaps appropriately. Yeah. This is one of the moments where you actually get a glimpse of how outside characters might perceive him. And you realise that you could read this book as just being a story about a man who has suffered trauma as a child and is having these strange kind of fantasies and half-remembered dreams to try and rationalise that trauma and is dealing with the day-to-day living through the damage that that trauma has done. And you could read it solely as that, and disregard any of the fantasy elements of the original books. And yet, I don't totally want to read it like that. No, but then... um... You could apply. They could both apply. Exactly. That's one of the things yeah. we keep coming back to in Bowland. Yeah. They they, op- they occupy different spheres. Yes, but that's they what are I both want valid. To yeah, and um, and so yeah, I mentioned Selena Place earlier. So when and it, the doctor he's about to see isn't Meg at that appointment, mm. but that doctor suggests therapy to him, and so shortly after this 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 concept of don't go into the witch's house, he's then introduced to this this, this woman called Meg, mm. and you know maybe you're reaching but you're thinking well hang on who can we trust what's happening and you're thinking is is this the morrigan somehow but then you start to think no she probably isn't but then you have this moment later on in the book where and he talks about crows a lot and his fear of them he goes you know is it um corvus corone corone yeah. you know he keeps repeating the, the latin mm. names for birds and uh goose goose the cranes yes uh oh, gallus gallus domesticus mm. um chickens and uh so much later on he he references the waiting room scene again uh she was reading a story to him said colin about a boy going to a witch's house and i had a flashback i couldn't help it and he talks briefly about his memories of being in in the morrigan's house um and she said tell me do i have to it matters colin it matters a lot i don't mock witches yeah he says i'm in a room in a big house i don't remember how i've come to be there Crows are perched on the windowsills outside, and and there's a witch. She's standing over me. I know she's a witch. She's all in black, with a cord around her waist. I'm lying on the floor. I can't move. And then Meg says, does she look like me? And it's a bit, (laughs) why would you say that? And he says, no, she's older, fatter and older. You hesitated. 
Only because you asked. Though, sometimes you do have that look about you when you scare me. Like, what an odd passage. Mm. And the first, I think this is the third time I've read it. The first two times I read it, I was convinced that Meg was the Morrigan. Mm. And I thought that Colin might be a sort of latter-day projection of Catalan. Mm. Um, This time, I'm not so sure about Meg being the Morrigan, because I felt That she might actually be somebody else. Yeah, Yeah. I I did. And perhaps if I read it a fourth time, I would think that she was somebody else again. (laughs) No, she's Bess Mussock. That's who she is. (laughs) Uh, maybe I do she is. Um she, she is a fascinating character and yeah. it's almost um when she sort of ceases to be at the mm, end. Well, well ooh, should we do a spoiler warning and then I don't know. I don't think spoiler warnings really okay, apply yeah. with this. Because I was just about to say let, yeah. let's talk about the ending with well, that yeah. that particular bit. Yeah, I, it's difficult kind of talking about the ending. Maybe we should circle back to it and talk about some of the other characters first mm. um, because we've not touched on Bert and we've not I, touched I find on the Paleolithic diffi- sections. I, I find it difficult to talk about Bert without talking about the ending. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean maybe we should have a cup of tea. I think we need to have a cup of tea and we need to make a, a plan to talk about this untalkable <laughs> book. Yeah. I think we've done well to get yeah, 40. We have, yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about Doctor Who. We've actually talked about <laughs> Boneland. Um so in, in our last episode in the, in the tea break, um, we had a, a blog from Neil Gaiman about how to make the perfect cup of tea because whenever we, possible, we like to talk about how a particular author likes their tea. Now, as far as I'm aware, no such uh, writing exists from Alan Garner. So I did the only sensible slash lunatic thing and I wrote to him uh, and asked him how to make the perfect cup of tea. We didn't reply. Uh, so... Well, that was setting up for disappointment. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I thought I'd let everyone take a sharp intake of breath and wait for some <laughs> profound wisdom. No, give it about three fine. years. He might come in back fifty to you years to do another Alan Garner book. Yeah, but he'll just send me a sachet of instant coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? Is it an answer to the question? Um, so we'll just have to imagine. Um, I, I I woke. I made one cup. I made two cups. I made three cups. <laughs> That'll do. So, in lieu of uh, Alan Garner's expert advice, uh, we just put the kettle on, put some tea bags in some mugs, poured it in, stirred it, milk, job's a good one. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> Fallon. <laughs> For any look around you fans out there. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so we, we've talked, or at least we've tried to talk, about the characters and the story and the, the well, scenario. Half the story. Yeah, it, half the story, because there is um, a completely... I won't say separate, but there is um, another narrative running parallel to Colin's story, which we haven't really touched upon yet. And Mark's going to read you another sample. Where are your stories? The man with light in his eyes sat over him, and the smoke was sweet. The cloud moved from his head. Here is my story. In the beginning was Crane. It opened its wings and that above it called sky, and that below it called earth. The wings lifted sky from earth and flew between to hold them apart, and Crane laid a black egg, 
and made it with its beak to be a stone. And when the stone was made, Crane breathed on the flakes that it had shed, and said, Be spirits. Take the stone, and with it shape the world, give mountains and rivers and waters. And Crane laid another egg, and opened it, and said to the yoke, Be sun, and give light. And it said to the water about the yoke, Be moon, so that when sun sleeps you will give light. And because you held sun inside the egg, you are its mother and will live forever. But you will remember how you gave birth, and each month you will grow big and then small, and then rest for three nights before you grow again. And so that there will be no dark, I shall take the shell and make it into pieces, and call them stars, and give them spirits and shapes to light the world. And from the skin of the egg, I shall make a mighty spirit to send out eagles from its head and feed the stars. And I shall put people to walk the earth and make beasts that may hunt, and so that they may have spears to hunt with and blades to cut. I shall shape a mother of rock from a bone of moon and set it in the hills. And the beginning shall come and sing and dance and tell stories of the beginning and dream, so that she will let them take the bone and live. Then Crane came down to the world and broke the loud crag with its beak, and opened it to the waters below, and called it Lugcrook. And in the lowmost cavern it put the stone and the spirits around it, to take the stone and make all that would be. Then Crane went back to fly forever, so that earth and sky should stand apart, and life could live. That is my story. It is a true story, said the other. Who is the other? <laughs> What's going on? What's go- yeah, what is going on there? It's a sort of creation It's a creation myth, myth isn't mm. it? Yeah. I don't know, people think the Silmarillion's impenetrable. That was... <laughs> but it is incredibly beautiful. Yes. Um, and so evocative, even though you're not entirely sure what's happening. Because, as I mentioned, Colin's story is interlaced with sections such as that. I mean, it, it's almost, I'd say, 50% of the story. I'd say there's almost yeah, as yeah. much of the Paleolithic sections. And I'm saying Paleolithic, I don't know historically geologically if that's right but them uh, days exactly there's almost as much them days as there is these days <laughs> whenever whenever it's set but you wonder are those sections when colin is sleeping and is that yes. what he's dreaming or is it something that happened thousands of years prior to the events of boneland or is it the idea that we all have this kind of like a race memory of our creation or our awakening i think it's all three we're back I to think, the quote yeah, from the beginning yeah. of the episode aren't we i i think it is something that happened thousands of years ago yeah and i think in some way colin is an ancestor of this person and in a modern way is performing the same function but is dreaming about his ancestors doing the same thing yeah. in the same space on that spot but at the same time is it really Colin, or is the text that we're seeing of Colin dreaming itself is, a dream? Yeah. And if so, whose dream is it? What is it? We are the dreamer that lives inside a dream. <laughs> Get back in the kettle, Philip Jeffries. Um, but also, um, is it the first human in that mm. sense? Or if human's the right word... Um, the first person and in that sense that yes it is colin's 
Colin is a descendant from this person, but as are we all, and we all have these inherent memories or, or not even memories. It's kind of, it's more fundamental than that, isn't it? I don't even know if it's the first human because the person in the Paleolithic sections describes an old man coming and teaching him to do those things. I wondered if that was God. Well, I wondered if he was God. Oh, well, yeah. And they're all gods, these early people. Yeah. And there's almost a kind of Adam and Eve type aspect to it as well, because you get the impression that he has carved this woman yes. and had the child, that, but she's died in childbirth. But then it ends, again, we're sort of jumping ahead, but it ends, the very ending is him carving woman from the mm. rock. And I don't see that carving as in creating, uh, as more in releasing, but I'll talk mm. more about that later. But mm. then, so yeah, it, it's very ambiguous. Or maybe it isn't, maybe I'm just not getting it. But um, in I think some, you and the rest of the world. <laughs> I can't remember exactly, I should have looked this up before uh, the episode, but I think in Norse mythology, there is something mad like the world was kind of did it did a, m- a massive bull lick moss from a stone and create the universe. I'm sure it's something like that. That doesn't sound that mental <laughs> to me. Um, I, I, so on the one hand, you almost you get this character, whoever they are, this this this, this god, this wizard, this dreamer, this this early human. And they seem to be releasing things from from the earth, from the stone. And it's kind of ambiguous, to my mind anyway, as to whether or not he's literally creating them or freeing them or releasing them into the world. Or if he's drawing them. And the the, the quote mm, you read earlier... Like cave paintings. About Meg saying about the cave paintings. And when I said first human, what really struck me is that, you know, there's so much in this in this book about story you know whether it's mythology or folklore or fairy tale you know uh, this is my story and it is a true story mm. and the idea that a story can be true but not real you know yeah. um and even though um you know visual art whatever you want to call it um you know predates the written word by quite a long way and in that sense i think it's even though there are no words involved i think if you look at primitive cave paintings they're the first stories and that idea that we not just record things but that we celebrate things Mm. or or interpret things you know artistically that is what makes us humans Mm. that's the only you know animals don't draw or or write or record things or even celebrate things the way you know if you look at you know early humans drawing animals and and exaggerating parts of their anatomy whether it be horns or or whatever is is it a celebration of I don't know that their, their food or their their environment but the the point is is this character the first person to draw things and therefore mm. is is this person the original storyteller and it is his story and it is a true story and it's that true sense of awakening and then you go right back to to Weirdstone and uh, it begins with a legend about you know the farmer mm. from Mobley and uh, and you know the, the the wizard and the sleeping knights yeah. and and even though we meet the wizard and we go into the Fundindelve and we know that there are sleeping knights there, you get the impression that the the, the prologue is not real, 
It's just a story <laughs> that someone's told and someone's told and then Gowther tells it. But it's true. It's mm. a true story. And I don't know, maybe I'm reaching, but that was one of the many things I took from these sections that, oh, this person, when it says he you know, he carves, you know, he, I can't remember the exact wording, but like, you know, he, he it's like it's like he carves these things and they come to life. Mm. And does it mean like our understanding of them? Because like, what is a wolf until we call it a wolf and yeah. draw it and and have, you know, the, the connotations of, of the word and the imagery? And, and it reminds me, actually, I, I recently read... Um, uh, Tolkien's biography by Humphrey Carpenter and this goes right back to earlier in the episode that idea of you know you're an astrophysicist talking about poetry or, or whatever it was that idea you know science and, and fairy stories being the same thing but sort of fundamentally different and it was actually in relation to faith which again is is interesting because there, there's a line uh, I think in that very section where where Colin's talking to Meg about, you know, the the difference between science and and fantasy. And he says, well, you know, faith is all that matters. It's all you've got. You know, what you believe is all you are and all you have. And and very interesting. Apparently, Tolkien was talking to C.S. Lewis about religion. uh, And he, I think he used, I can't remember the the exact details, but he said something along, along the lines of, you know, star, stars and trees exist, except those words star and tree are just our names for them like they don't actually inherently explain what they are or contain Mm. what they are but as humans it's our way of using something as a sort of intermediary between something that's basically beyond our comprehension you know how can you use it up in a concept that we can understand a concept yeah and he said and that's what stories are they are all it's said all fairy tales are absolutely true but we've we've put sort of fundamental and universal truths in in ways we can understand them mm. and i thought yeah I, so i, I really the, all, all those sort of um prehistoric sections i just i just thought of this character as a storyteller mm. bringing things to life by giving them names and therefore meanings or even not names in a pictorial sense you know, turning something into an icon and it's quite funny because there is a bit where um uh, meg describes a hill as iconic and colin who's the <laughs> yeah. complete pedant i mean he's, we'll come to this later he's quite autistic mm. almost in some respects isn't he? i think it does describe him as having as having asperger's yeah yeah say. um and he says no it's not iconic and he describes yeah. like <laughs> an icon is, a, is a, you know an image on a computer or you know a religious <laughs> so symbol like an encyclopedia is a, is a, the, the word you're looking for is conical because uh, it's a conical shaped <laughs> hill but she does actually mean like oh it's, it's iconic but, yeah um but yeah i just thought that was that was interesting and a very um Obviously, this is a very short book. It's more of a novella, really, isn't it? But you can tell every word has been chosen and weighed so yeah. carefully. It probably did take 50 years to write, you know. Anyway, so what's your take on, on The Shaman? I think you've pretty much summed it up. I also think there's an element an element of it um, where Alan Garner is quite literally trying to think about early man and what our religion would have been and what our gods would have been and how the early brain would have perceived the things around us and assume that the actions of animals and the changing of the seasons are as a result of their Mm. carvings and cave paintings. And if you wanted to look at it quite literally, if it was just a short story about getting inside the head of early man, Mm. that would be fascinating as well. But I like to think there's more significance to it. Definitely. Um, and 
I love the idea that he's making carvings and creating things. And I love the possible link to um, Colin. Or is it Colin? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were also wondering as well, you know, every fantasy series have it has its uh, Gandalf, mm. wizard-type figure, and it's Cadillin in the first two books in this series. Um, and then Cadillin is pretty much absent from this book. And if you... If you were being rather literal about it, the only flash you perhaps get of him is in a memory of Collins when it describes him standing over... Well, it describes an old man standing over him looking angry. when I read that bit. Yes. Um, But it's an interesting kind of view of Cadillin because Cadillin, I would say, compared to a lot of those fantasy wizards, he does have a more kind of brusque, angry Mm. side to him. He isn't all starry-eyed. Um, there is something kind of a little bit harsher about him. And he well, does he has have a, a job temper. to do. Yes, he's he's guarding these knights, mm. and he can't. He does stray from his lair, makes him mm. sound like a villain, but you know, his cave, uh, and he does sort of interfere for good. But ultimately, he's quite. I think he's annoyed that these kids have, have come yeah. along and, and mucked everything up. And like, not only did she have the weird stone, she's now bloody gone and given it away. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's interesting. When I first read this book and I read that part, I thought, is this a flip of the narrative and is it about perspectives? If Meg is the Morrigan, is Meg actually good and is she genuinely trying to help him and was she always? And was it Cadillin? Was he (laughs) the bad guy and he was leading them astray? And that's not something I've settled on, but reading this book, that was a question I asked. Which is is funny if you go back to the original Weirdstone, the Dark Lord, is it the evil sorcerer? Is he called Grimnir? Again, oh, it's a, yes. A, a, yeah. another, I think it's stolen from Norse mythology, isn't it? Um, uh, but he turns out to be, uh, he turns out to be the wizard's brother, doesn't he? And they see him with yes. his hood off at the end and they, they, oh, he look, they look identical. Yeah. And it's like Saruman and Gandalf. Again, yeah, the Lion, yeah. The White Rider. That, that duality. Mm. Um yeah and of course there's another there's a massive uh, um one of the sort of motifs is the paleolithic axe Mm. and there's that the quarry where there are just loads of them and again another kind of link between the two parts of the story is the fact that colin seems to keep happening upon things that may have been part of the paleolithic man's story and we wonder if the, the black stone or the, his, the his boss find... just happens to have this yes. paperweight. And it was found under the foundation site of Jodrell Bank, where Colin works. And then his boss gives it to him when he's trying to persuade him to keep his job. Yeah. But is that the same tool that the Paleolithic man was using to, to cut carve, these things from the rock? Carve yeah. the shapes and bring these things to life or to tell his stories. Mm. Um, but again, in that sense of like human not so much evolution, but development and progression. And so you've got like that, that very primitive thing of, of carvings. And then you get that next, well, not next, but that further stage of advancement of building a radio telescope and probing mm. the heavens, you know? So, and we've pretty much already spoiled this a bit in so far as it's possible to spoil Boneland, because we certainly won't tell you what's going on because nobody knows. <laughs> um, or rather, it's whatever you want to be going on. Uh, but let's talk about the ending proper. So if you haven't read the book, go away and, and read it. Um, read all three of them. He has this, yeah, he has this 
Colin has this sort of bizarre encounter with Meg. I mean, they're all pretty bizarre. <laughs> uh, they're on the phone, aren't they? And she, and she hangs up. Yeah. And then he tries to call back. And the number's disconnected, not in use. And he rings directory inquiries. Mm. Um, oh, no, that's the... Oh, oh um... so, so going back to the very beginning, mm. uh, when he's dis- discharged from hospital, there's this really friendly taxi driver called Bert. Mm who takes him home and comes into his hut with him and helps him. He says, where's the switch? What switch? For the electric. He says, oh, there is no electric. And Bert's almost a bit like the Galva of this book. He really or perhaps is, he yeah. is an embodiment of Galva Mosset yeah. for a modern age. But he's a sort of balm. And he, I wouldn't say, he, in terms of the actual narrative, he actually plays a critical role. But he... He but is he's the closest example of like proper humanity we get. Yeah. He's the outside you know, Or is he? Like, well, is he, yeah. But there are doctors and 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 there's there are scientists mm. and there's this therapist, people who are a bit clinical and Colin's very odd. And then you get Bert, who's just he's just like a proper like Cheshire man. Mm. And he, he's a taxi driver, a normal guy with a normal job with a sort of Cheshire accent and 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 Colin obviously feels very safe around him and, and and Bert isn't put off by his peculiarities and his lack of electricity and all that. And Bert's always just there when he needs him. He never has to call he never, him. He never phones through a taxi. Well, it's just when he's ready, it's waiting That's outside. the funny bit later on because he says, oh, you know, c- can I ask for you next time? But then there's a bit, oh, I should have bookmarked it, but when he gets in the taxi, he says, oh, did they call ahead? And you realise that... Colin didn't book the taxi, nor did the doctor. Bert's mm. just there. But it's very subtle and think you miss it first time or just think think it's Colin being paranoid. Um, so, yeah, then skip to the end and he's he, Meg's hung up and he tries to ring back and the number's disconnected. Uh, so then he rings for a taxi. No, he can't get through. That's when he rings directory inquiries. And they said the taxi firm never doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't yeah. exist. So they said maybe it's gone out of business, but there's no number for it. And then you think, okay, well, everything that's happened has all been in Colin's head. Mm. Um, but then it gets weirder because he goes to Meg's house. And, of course, she's not there. Nobody by that name lives there. empty and... But he remembers it. Yeah. And then there's a guy at the house. And he does, does it describe him? I'm not sure. But the guy is, uh, you know, the way his speech is written, he speaks like Bert. But he's not a taxi driver. But he's not a taxi driver. He's maintaining the house. He seems to be paid to look after the property whilst it's empty. Uh, Yeah, and then he lets um, Colin into the house. And Colin knows, oh, this is the library through here. And all the furniture that he remembers has dust sheets over it. He can describe it all. But he's definitely been in that house before, even if Meg isn't real. Mm. And then as he's leaving, the guy, the maintenance guy, the builder, whatever, he introduced himself as Bert. (laughs) (laughs) What is going on? Has... Colin been wandering around this empty house imagining Meg and has he conjured the idea of the the, the nice groundskeeper or whatever he is as his taxi driver or is none of it real? Is this bit the dream? And is this the Morrigan's house? Because in Gomrath it describes the Morrigan's house as being covered in rhododendron plants Mm. and Meg's house or the empty house is also the garden is full of rhododendrons. Yeah. And I suppose well, it's just one bit we haven't really talked about is one of the coolest and most memorable and eeriest sections of the novel uh, is the bit where he may or may not be speaking to his sister mm. at the uh, the listening posts, is it, at Jodrell Bank? The Whisper Dishes. Whisper Dishes, that's yeah. it. So if and anyone's it... been to Jodrell Bank... Well, I have. <laughs> and in fact, my copy of Boneland... 
when I came to reread it, I noticed it was marked out with a train ticket. And the train ticket is from uh, a day where I visited Jodrell Bank and I walked across from Goose Street, Chelford, via Jodrell Bank, which is in the middle of those two stations. And I don't know if you still can, but back then you could walk straight through the sites and those whisper or whispering dishes mm. are actually there. Uh, now, I was on my own and I wouldn't have dared talk oh into the whisper God. dishes because imagine? I would have been too scared to hear what voice might Hello, come back. <laughs> but yeah, seemingly, Colin is explaining to a child who's playing about with the whispering mm. dishes how they should work rather uh, pedantically. Yeah. But then the child stops speaking and another voice replaces it and he looks up and the child is gone. And it seems that his sister is speaking to him from mm. from deep space or yeah. from within his own subconscious. And he's convinced he can communicate with Susan. And then he returns there at the end of the book, doesn't mm. he? But, he's, but this time he's talking to Meg, who, yeah. who by now we found out that she never existed. And her, her house is empty and her number is disconnected. And you get this really, really strange section where you start to think, well, hang on, maybe Meg isn't the Morrigan at all. Maybe Meg is the adult Susan. Mm. And and I mentioned, you know, again, sort of parallels uh, with the ocean at the end of the lane. And in our previous episode, we talked a bit about the, the concept of the, the triple goddess, mm. the three in one. Uh, and again, you get you get a slight witch vibe from Meg. Uh Especially with the, you know, the the, the connotation, uh, you know, uh, the parallels with the Morrigan and and whatnot. Um, but then you get this. Th- he's talking into the dish, um, and it's difficult. <laughs> A lot of the the text in this book is is just speech. I'm. Tr- it's very hard to jump in because it's hard to know who <laughs> yeah. is speaking when. There uh, we go. Meg says, and this is all. You know, she's not corporeally there this is all whispered through these dishes but that's the way it is and has to fare my love you end at the start you told me yourself i did yes i did we are always with you colin always have been always shall be all three 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 her too her too her in the room her in the room trinity you are nothing without her she is the shadow that shapes your light. The moon, Colin, ever strong, ever dying, ever young, the same. We are the three, with you, of you, in you. No need to fear or find. What does that mean? What do you make of that? <laughs> it's it's spellbinding. Um, and... <laughs> I Tapping into the triple goddess thing... If you look at that literally, is the triple goddess made out of Susan, Meg, and the moon? Mm. Like who who is the third part of that trinity? Or have we not met the third part of that trinity? So that's one rhetorical question. He talks question. about the room, and that makes you think of him being in the room in the Morrigan's house in the second book, and ties into what you were saying earlier, that, well, maybe she isn't actually an evil figure and mm. maybe it was his childhood perception of the of this strange and scary woman yeah. and um <clears throat> just to talk more about colin and his personality and his psyche i wonder if this to some extent uh, represents his fear of women mm. uh and maybe fear isn't the right word but you get this sense i mean 
I imagine Colin in his your mid to late 50s do you think yeah, in this book yeah i think so and you get the impression that he's definitely a virgin mm. and he lives alone and he's very isolated and odd and apart from meg who may or may not exist mm. he doesn't really he doesn't have many relationships but he he has colleagues and he has bert but he doesn't really seem to have any women in his life i suppose the only woman he would encounter in his everyday life is ruth who works at jardrell bank who gets a few mentions but there's no sense of any kind of deep companionship between them she's just a colleague that he makes passing comments to and back to that uh again you mentioned the moon and that was something we we talked about in the um the ocean at the end of the lane episode and the idea of the triple goddess of the maiden mother and crone um and the parallel of like you know that the phases of the moon and the phases of the mm. female life cycle uh and just to refresh my memory of gumrath before recording this episode i was I was reading the the wikipedia summary of the moon of gomra the second book in the weirdstone series and as we mentioned that the first book revolves around this kind of um talismanic weirdstone that susan happens to have uh and she ends up giving it away uh in the second book to ease the surrender of the weirdstone in the weirdstone of brisingerman susan was given a magical bracelet by Angarad, Angarad? Do you think that's pronounced? Angarad, I, I think. Angarad Goldenhand. It is the donning of this bracelet which has launched Susan unwittingly on a destiny connected with the cycles of the moon, and hence the older, wilder powers of the world. And you get this idea, she's pursued by this thing, and then the book ends with her seeking sanctuary in the Pleiades, mm. which, which we talked about in Boneland, uh, Meg and Colin are discussing how that's uh, a, a refuge for, for maidens. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because they're sort of, I'm not sure how old they're supposed to be, probably about 12. I think by they the are 12 book. in the, yeah. And, and that idea of of Susan having to surrender something and becoming tied to mm. the cycles of, of the moon. And it immediately um, made me think of uh, a passage in Boneland when they're uh, talking about the Pleiades. Um, and especially having read um, the ending of, of Gomrath, this bit seems particularly relevant. Um, wait, yes. Oh, Meg, what? The Pleiades culminate at midnight on the 21st of November. I don't get you. What's culminate? The highest point reached on the meridian in the year, said Colin. That's why she rode. She followed. By the time she got to Reedsmere, they were reflected in the water. Meg, she had to. She made it. But why, said Meg, she had to. And why the Pleiades? Ex-Africa, said Colin. The Pleiades are so often the refuge of women and maidens. Refuge from what? Threat of one kind or another, usually pursuit. Women and maidens, said Meg, but not girls, children. Not that I know of, said Colin. I'm not an expert. The threat makes sense. It's obvious. How, said Colin. Menarche. Now she's an adult, but she's immature. So are you. Is that why she's back? She needs help. So do you. Riddle me that. And menarche is like a, an archaic term for a young woman's first period. Ah, okay. And so you get this, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the whole thing seems to be like a, a metaphor for not exactly loss of innocence, but you get, you know, they're twins and there's a boy and a girl and they're probably almost interchangeable until a, until a certain point in their adolescence where they start to become different people. Mm. And it's almost like at that stage in her life, Susan is 
irrevocably lost to Colin. She's unreachable to Yeah, she's, she's in the Pleiades. Mm. Um, but then, you know, and also there's there's the sort of therapy element to it about go to the pain. And, and a lot of the time it seems like he's trying to find Susan. But then sometimes he seems scared of her as well. Yeah. And there's a really poignant bit where he's afraid. He says, she's coming to get me with her arms outstretched. And Meg says, no, she's a child. She wants to be picked up. Mm. And it's almost that it's something in therapy that you have to imagine your childhood self yes. and, and hug them and comfort them and say, no, I'm, I'm an adult and I'm strong and I'm capable and I'm here for you. And it's almost like does he even have a twin sister is 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 susan his own feminine side that he's suppressed and he has mm. to embrace because again in the sort of uh you know the three of us section uh when when she says you know we are the moon colin ever strong ever dying ever young the same we are the three with you of you in you no need to fear or find mm. And but then again, I'm I'm going back back to that quote at the beginning of like, well, it's everything, isn't it? It means everything. <laughs> I think all of these readings are valid. Is it about his his sister? Is it about his inner child? Is it about his feminine side? Is it about his fear of women? Or if you wanted to stick to the more literal reading that he did have a sister when he was younger and yeah. she died, which you is could confirmed. apply the same kind of well, it's it's confirmed mm, yeah. in the newspaper. You could apply the same reading to that, perhaps. It wasn't her loss of innocence and estrangement from him. Perhaps it was actually her death and mm, losing mm. a female figure in his life that made him kind of suppress his feminine side and become yeah. scared of it and perhaps become scared of other women by proxy. And, and it would of, still stand in that trauma narrative at the same time. And see sort of any strange woman as synonymous with a witch, which yeah. historically... Or at least the supernatural. That's, that's sort of where the concept of the witch comes from, mm. like the vilification of the feminine mm. you know um but all women well susan and meg are both supernatural mm. to him mm. meg perhaps in a more ambiguous is she trying to do him good or harm is she a witch and susan in a more kind of a ethereal sort of maiden sense yeah because she's become something other than human mm. you know um but and like like you said it's so difficult to sort of pick apart what's what's real and what's imagined and if you haven't read this book and you should have done if you've got this far into the episode but you might assume that it's really really it is bizarre that's uh, but it it's incredibly sort of grounded and it, yes. it never feels like you're reading a fantasy book or a fairy tale book no. it feels very very realistic you know it's so well realized and, and and rooted in reality um and and there are certain things in it that you feel fairly confident you can say yes th this is definitely happening or mm. this is fact and and like you say there are newspaper articles about colin that you find out why he lost his memory he was struck by lightning mm. when he was living on the farm and uh, i'm sure that relates to an event that we see from a kind of fantastical perspective yeah. in the moon of gomrath i think so yeah and i'm sure there's a section where colin is struck or something like that or suffers a great yeah. injury that Perhaps in that sort of ocean at the end of the lane way, are the boy kind of realising traumatic events into fantasy to explain them. Yeah. You think, was the lightning strike the reality of, you know, what actually happened mm. to the boy? And were those two books perhaps his way of turning the the reality, the trauma, into something that he could comprehend at the time? And that's another thing. This book makes you question everything that happened in the previous <laughs> yeah, two. Yeah. Was it real? <laughs> and like you say, so the other thing I feel that we can be completely certain of is that 
Colin has some trauma in his mm. past. That's absolutely real. And I, I remember reading that Alan Garner had had therapy and was inspired by that for the that concept, something that Meg says repeatedly of go to the pain mm. and, and em, em, embrace it and find out what it is, just, just go to the pain. And you could read it in so many ways. And before we wrap up, because we are, time is running on. Uh, but one thing I, I do find interesting, there's... Um, there's a line at the end of Moon of Gomrath, I think it was in the bit I read, where it basically says that this would be with Colin for the rest of his life. And you get the impression he's kind of damaged by what's happened. Mm. Um, and so we meet this adult Colin who's, you know, incredibly clever, but also very shut in and isolated and almost a bit paranoid. Um, and you assume that that's who he is and that's what he's been like his whole life. And yet, as we mentioned, the book begins with him being discharged from hospital. And in the scene where he tries to resign and he's talking to his boss, his boss is having none of it because he's, you know, he's an expert in his field. Colin is an expert in his field. And and he says, look, your work was uh, exemplary until you became ill. Mm. And you think, ooh. So was he like a functioning adult yeah. for for a long time? Is he having some sort of midlife crisis where he sold his house, built a hut on yes. a hill, you know, renounced electricity, become a wizard, and is trying to communicate with someone who may or may never have existed, who may or may not live in the Pleiades? It's interesting. I've not thought about that. I didn't know information this... about his intervening no. years between those two newspaper articles when he's about twelve and thirteen, and what we see now yeah. in the contemporary narrative that's fascinating so that's bone land <laughs> i mean we've we've barely uh scratched the surface of the rock yeah. we've barely released crane <laughs> i think we i think we've done a decent job yeah uh, for talking so, about yeah. 150 pages of what might be considered abstract poetry <laughs> I, I think it absolutely is abstract poetry <laughs> yeah um and just beautifully written. Oh, it's funny because when I found out this book existed, you read it and you were just blown away and said mm. it was one of the best books you'd ever read. And then I bought possibly it for, the best. I bought it for my dad for his birthday, <laughs> uh, and he thought it was awful. And he it's hated one of the worst it. books he's ever <laughs> yeah. read. So I came at it, you know, really not knowing what to expect. And I think I, I landed somewhere in the middle. I think my dad was really frustrated with it because you know he loved the, the first two books uh, when he was younger. And he said it nearly explained everything. I think it's that scene where uh, Colin and Meg are at Stormy Point mm. and he's starting to remember things and there are references that are fairly unambiguous. And I think that's even the scene where it mentions who may or may not be the wizard. You know? yeah. And he said, I felt like it was all about to fall into place. And, he said, and then it just dissipated. <laughs> uh, and I could see that again. It's a strange comparison and spoilers for uh, Twin Peaks The Return. But reading this book for the first time, for me, was a bit like um, watching Dougie Jones in Twin mm. Peaks The Return. You keep waiting for something to happen. And it doesn't, and it doesn't, and it doesn't. And when it does happen, it doesn't quite happen in the way you wanted it to. But then when you go back and rewatch it, you think you appreciate it for what it is. And you think it's you wonderful. Love Dougie Jones. Yeah. And in the same way with Boneland, and I, I really enjoyed it first time round even though it leaves a lot open to the imagination. In fact, it leaves everything open to the imagination. <laughs> um, but 
on subsequent rereads, that's what I've loved about it. And it is one of those, you know, I don't know if I'll ever reread Weird Son of Brisingerman now because I remember mm. it. It's really good. It's a good kid's book. I, I don't mean that in a disparaging sense, but it's, it's a brilliant, it's kids a brilliant book. kid's book, yeah. but I remember it. And whereas Boneland, I, I, I've read it three times now and you get something different from it every time. And I can't imagine a reading where I don't find something new in it mm. you know i think i will continue to read reread this throughout my life and yeah contrary to what your dad might have thought <laughs> i would say it has all the answers but it has all the possible answers and it just doesn't tell you which one is the right one well consider it this way if the answers could be written they'd be written um with the letters of the alphabet and all the letters mm. of the alphabet are contained within the book so there <laughs> ergo <laughs> the answers <laughs> are there um, we normally talk about adaptations, but can you imagine? <laughs> it could play. work as a really yeah. bizarre stage play. Um, I don't imagine there'll be a TV series or film no. of this anytime soon. No. And I think probably for the best, I just don't think it could be realised. I can imagine somebody doing a great like painting or record or something inspired by Boneland. A, a Boneland that didn't really kind album. of seek to explain it, yeah. but just ran with just the react themes. to it. Yeah. But then... We both listened to an audiobook yeah. reading by Robert Powell, which was fantastic. Incredible. I think, again, I don't know why I keep referring to last month, but for some reason these these books and these episodes have become kind of linked in my head. But um, when we did Ocean at the End of the Lane, you said you had this whole new appreciation from mm. the book having listened to the audiobook, and that's what I felt. I'd, I'd read it, and then I listened and it was incredible. It's one of the best audiobooks I've ever heard, actually. Mm. I'd go that far. Because I, I texted you at the time. I said, oh, my God, it isn't like listening to an audiobook. It's like a radio play. Yes. You know, he does the characters' voices so well, but also distinctly. You know, and the, the Paleolithic bits have got this sort of gorgeous reverb on that mm. they sound like they're in a cave and... Which is helpful because in the book it doesn't really differentiate between them. You would assume no. that one section would be written no. in italics or no, something, there, but it there just are no jumps. chapters, no. no sections. It's um, 150 pages of <laughs> just solid text. Solid text. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, pretty much like everybody else in the world, I first encountered Robert Powell as Jesus. Mm. Uh, and Not really. Not really. <laughs> uh, portraying Jesus in a TV series. Um and, you know, I'm used to him speaking with a sort of proper RP mm. accent. And uh, I was, I listened to, to this audiobook on a certain uh, well-known uh, audiobook streaming platform uh, where there is no issue with the sound quality. That has it, it perfectly is totally audible. audible. Yeah. Yes. Um, I won't name them till they pay us. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm still I, waiting I'm, for the money from Specsavers from I'm, last month. I'm a bit picky with audiobooks. It has to be a really good reading for me to... You know, because my attention wanders when I'm listening in a way it doesn't when I've got the words in front of me. Mm. I prefer to read. But um, so I li always listen to the sample and I listened to the sample and I caught a snippet. Uh, I think it was one of one of Meg's lines. Oh, he does Meg so well. Which is and Bert. But and I thought and instantly I knew I thought, oh, Robert Powell's a northerner. I thought that is not <laughs> an affected accent, even though you knew and he's a great actor. I'm sure he could do any accent. But I just knew I thought that's not affected. And I looked on Wikipedia. I thought, oh, he's from Salford. Oh, I never oh, knew I didn't that. Know that. But right. it's funny, like instantly, as soon as I heard his voice, I thought, yeah, that's that's a real Northern accent. So I was I was, I was really impressed by that. Um, but yeah, what a performance! Mm. And he, he oh, he just gives all the characters so much depth. And we mentioned the the, the scene where they're whispering in, into the discs. Oh, and, yeah, it's so creepy. You know, he gets right up close mm. to the mic, and it's 
But anyway, on the uh, it was actually I got to listen to it for free because it was included with <clears throat> a certain <clears throat> audiobook streaming site. Oh, interesting. Uh, and I checked this morning, and it's only included until the twenty seventh of. Oh, hang on. July. <laughs> this episode's going out in August. Oh. Uh, I noticed someone had put a free one on YouTube, which we, you know, of the Robert Powell. Yeah, oh, right. yeah you know, well, copy, copyright theft and all but, that. Yeah. But you know, get on YouTube and listen to it while you can. Also, I mean, to promote local libraries, a colleague of mine told me about an app called BorrowBox, um, which is actually you sign in with your local library card number, and then you can download uh, audiobooks from your local library catalogue to listen to. And that's why I listen to Bone Line oh, wow. through uh, well, the Manchester City Council Borrow Box. Uh, so that's worth checking out as well, I'm sure. When you our said local you got libraries to... services need support in this age of government funding cuts. When you said you got it from the library, I, I imagined uh, you checking out a big bundle of cassette tapes <laughs> and, and having it stamped. Oh, that would be nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> well, so last month... We did The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. We've just done Boneland by Alan Garner and also touched upon the other books in the Weirdstone series. I think that's pretty much the, the fantasy section of uh, this series of a book, a book at Breakfast Over. Um, unless you can think of any other fantasy books that we read and loved growing up. Hmm... Yes, that's right. Join us on Saturday the 3rd of September when we discuss The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien.